Matthew chapter 21, if you take your Bible and join me there today, Matthew chapter number 21, we're going to look at a passage today that is one of those passages we oftentimes find ourselves in on a day that we refer to as Palm Sunday. I know we're still some weeks away from Palm Sunday, but the passage is fitting for us and specifically the section of the passage that we will narrow our attentions to. How many of you have ever noticed that a crowd tends to gather a crowd? In other words, if there's something that's happening, we want to see what's going on because we might want to be a part. Have you ever just stood someplace before where there's a large gathering of people? Have you ever just looked up before and just kind of pointed like, wow, isn't that something? And then you start having people that are standing around looking and, and maybe you'll even get somebody to nod and say, oh, I see it. You know? and, Nothing really there to see. A crowd oftentimes gathers a crowd. Recently, Julie and I were driving, and as we're driving, there were all kinds of cars parked by the side of the road, and we just wanted to see what's there. Now, we didn't stop, but boy, we're sure craning our necks because there must be something exciting going on. A crowd gathers a crowd. In Matthew chapter 21, you have naturally a crowd that's gathering, but I think there is something unusual that's taking place. Now, the day was special. It is the beginnings of Passover. Jerusalem's a place that in Jesus' day would normally be a city which was large at about 100,000 plus people. Some estimates say that Jerusalem would easily swell to over a million people during Passover. Some estimates actually say it's not unreasonable to think that there would be some two million that are cramming into the cities and the surrounding suburbs for this grand annual celebration of Passover. And so people were certainly swelling the city. There was a natural sense of energy, electricity, if you will, just from the celebration that's about to begin. The setting that we're about to see in Matthew chapter 21 is going to mark the beginning of Jesus' last week of earthly ministry just prior to his crucifixion. In our timeline of the text, Jesus had recently raised Lazarus from the dead. Now, this is something that had spread far and wide. People had heard about and even some had seen the risen dead. Everyone wants to now at this point see this miracle worker that they're speaking about. Of course, Jesus had worked many miracles, but raising one who had been in the grave for days, this one who could feed multitudes, this one who would touch a leper and cleanse their defiled body, this one certainly is the promised one, the one they'd been anticipating and looking for. Everyone wanted to see Jesus. He's coming from Bethany and Bethage. These are small villages that are east of Jerusalem. The route Jesus would take would actually join the Jericho Road. It's going to come then to what we'd refer to as Mount Olivet, the Mount of Olives. And then he's going to descend that garden, that, that Gethsemane. He's going to continue down into what's referred to as the Kidron Valley. And then he's going to enter into the Eastern Gate. 
From the eastern gate, he will mount up to the mountain that is now the place that houses the temple in Jesus' day. This is something that you can almost visualize. Last Tuesday, Julie and I stood on top of the mount that Jesus would have taught on. We refer to it today as the temple mount. You can hear the crowds that are buzzing with excitement and then someone says, shh, be quiet, he's teaching. Now, this is something that is happening as Jesus enters, the crowd swell. Now, there was something that would traditionally happen as, as people would enter into Jerusalem. Tradition tells us that they would begin to quote sections of Psalm 118. The citizens of Jerusalem would chant one part and then the pilgrims entering into Jerusalem would answer. The citizens of Jerusalem, they would chant, for example, Psalm 118, 25, save now, I beseech thee, O Lord of Lords, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. And then the pilgrims marching into Jerusalem would answer with, blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. Then when they would come to the end of the psalm, they would cry out together, oh, give thanks unto the Lord for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. But this was no ordinary Passover day. The crowds were now directing their praise to Jesus. In our text in Matthew chapter 21, our, our chapter, verse number nine, and the multitudes that went before that followed cried saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, some of the Pharisees are outraged by what is being done because they understand what they are ascribing now to Jesus is that he is the promised one sent from God. Jesus responds to the Pharisees in Luke chapter 19 verse 40, same incident by saying, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. It is one of those mind-boggling things about standing in Jerusalem where stones are everywhere telling a story. In fact, the stones do today cry out to the veracity of scripture and the reality of the deity of Jesus Christ. Well, they, they tried to silence the crowds and of course the crowds would not be silenced. The city is so powerfully moved with the arrival of Jesus that the Bible records this. Matthew 21, verse number 10. And when he, Jesus, was come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, who is this? The word moved, it's an interesting word. It's the Greek word, sio. It's the word that we get seismic from. Do you know what they're saying? They're saying the city is literally trembling with excitement. Who is this one who is coming in the name of the Lord? So this is the setting. Something big is happening. Jesus is going to go on later. We'll not take time today to, to, to walk through this, but he's going to cleanse the temple and then the Bible records, now we don't have the individual stories recorded, but we know that he healed the lame, he heals the blind. 
all of this is occurring from what we can gather from, from the, the, the Bible account. All of this is happening on this temple mount. That there is a lot taking place in Jerusalem and Jesus is the epicenter of this seismic activity. So when you think about the fact that, that Jesus is in his last final week of ministry, what is it that he's about to teach? As you and I stand at this point in another year, a year that's before us, it is amazing to me that it is now a year before us. Do they continue to go past you with a speed that is almost blinding? And you wonder, how did we get to another new year? I wonder if our new year, this year that now rests entirely before us, I wonder if this year will be different from the last. Well, certainly there will be some things beyond our control that are different. But I wonder about those things that we can control. Those things that we do have an opportunity to influence, to, to have a part in, to say, okay, this was last year, but this is this year. What is my this year going to look like? If we consider what it is that Jesus in the last week of his earthly ministry just prior to his crucifixion will address, they certainly should be things that we pay attention to. I'm also going to acknowledge that we're going to scale this down to a more personal level. But I do think that when you study this passage and you take the whole context, we do no disservice to say, how does this impact me personally? But I also see a message that Jesus is delivering to Israel as a whole, as a nation. Let's not only see Israel or see another, or that's a good message for them. Let's also take the personal aspect of this and say, okay, if it was good for them, what in this passage is also likewise good for me? The title of my message today is Actions Speak Louder. Actions Speak Louder. Our text specifically today is going to be Matthew chapter 21, verses 28 through 32. And as we begin, the first thing we're going to notice that Jesus does is there is an introductory expectation. Expectations are helpful, aren't they? An introductory expectation. Do you know it's frustrating to us if we don't know what to expect. At times you may have taken a new position and, and you don't know exactly what is it that my employer is expecting. I, I don't know what to do. So Jesus paints for us something early in this narrative. In fact, it's, it's really before our specific text, but it helps us start to frame an understanding of expectation. What's he looking for? Let's look at this introductory expectation. Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse number 18. Matthew 21, beginning in verse number 18. Now in the morning, as he returned into the city, he hungered. Now remember, Jesus would come into the city and then he'd go back out for the evening to rest. We understand he went back to Bethany. He had friends there. And then he'd come back into the city and continue on with the celebration of Passover and with his teaching, his, his preaching. Now in the morning, as he returned into the city, he hungered. And when he saw a fig tree in the way, he came to it and found nothing thereon but leaves only. And said unto it, let no fruit grow on thee 
henceforth forever. And presently the fig tree withered away. Now we do know that often Jesus uses circumstances that surrounded him as a means to teach far more important biblical truths, such as the case here. Now, now there has been some question about the, the whole ordeal with Jesus cursing this fig tree and it withers and it dies. And in fact, in some passages we read, it wasn't the time for them to produce figs. So why would Jesus curse it and it die if it wasn't the time? Again, I, I, I trust I won't do this repeatedly, but on our trip to Israel, we're in a place called Nazareth Village. And we're just walking by, looking at life during Jesus' day. One of our guides during the course of the trip was a man by the name of Amur. And Amur says, look at the fig tree. And so we notice the fig tree. He says, have you ever wondered about the story where Jesus curses the fig tree and it dies, but it wasn't the time for it to produce fruit? And we're all kind of nodding our head. He said, I wondered it too. He said, I am walking people through and a man who actually harvested, grew and harvested figs. He asked me the same question. He says, have you ever wondered? And I said, yes, I have. He says, well, let me tell you what the fig tree does. He says, the fig tree will produce a first fruit. Sometimes it's just a lone fig or sometimes just a very few. And then it appears that the tree goes dormant, but then it produces figs again in abundance. He said, when Jesus came, there are leaves on the tree. It was reasonable by every standard for him to expect not only leaves, but fruit to be on the tree. So Jesus has this expectation. I've come to the tree. It is saying, in a sense, I'm available. I'm going to have the first fruits. And Jesus finds none. The picture that Jesus is painting is an expectation that he's introducing. He's going to follow this up more fully later through his narrative. When Jesus came to the fig tree, he had a reasonable expectation. As we evaluate this past year, what was the fruit of our lives individually and then collectively as a local church? What is it that our evaluation would say, was it reasonable for him to look expecting fruit and when he inspected, what did he find? The prophet Isaiah used the same picture and a vineyard was the illustration. In fact, in Isaiah chapter five, it's a great study regarding this whole narrative. We'll look at this one verse. Notice Isaiah chapter five, verse number four. Isaiah says, what could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it. Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. When you study the Isaiah passage, he's saying, hey, listen, I've done everything necessary for this vineyard to wonderfully produce. It's been fertilized, it's been cultivated, the rocks have been removed, a tower has been placed, even a press has been put in place with the expectation that it is going to bear fruit. He says, but when it was time to harvest, there was nothing valuable to harvest. After everything that the vine dresser had done, the vine produced wild grapes. When we look at the parallels, hasn't God also provided for us all that is necessary to be fruit-bearing followers of Christ? The prophet Micah said it this way. Micah 7.1, woe is me, 
for I am as when they have gathered the summer fruits as the grape gleanings of the vintage. There's no cluster to eat. My soul desired the first ripe fruit. I think that's what Jesus was anticipating when he went to the fig tree, the first fruits. Jesus was setting the table for what he's going to address on a more thorough basis, that of reasonable expectations. So let's just pause before we go any further. Reasonable expectations. When God looks at my life, just me, when God looks at your life, just yours. And then we broaden it out. We say, when God looks at the ministry, the work of campus church, isn't it reasonable to think that he has certain expectations? That he could say, okay, I'm doing this and this and this and this. And all of these I do out of the overflow of the goodness of my heart. And I also do so with some reasonable expectation. So so what is it that he's looking for? The first thing that we see here is an introductory expectation. But let's go beyond this in our passage. And we don't only see this, this reasonable, this introductory expectation. We also see that he kind of puts it out to us. He says, okay, now I'm gonna invite you to evaluate. The second thing we see is an invited evaluation. He's not going to draw conclusions for us. He's gonna say, hey, listen, I'll lay out the facts. You draw your own conclusions. That's a pretty gracious God to say, okay, here, I'll, I'll lay it all out for you, but I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna put everything together. You draw your own conclusions regarding that which has been presented. Well, notice how he opens this. He says, but what think ye? What are your thoughts regarding what it is that God's laying out before us that Jesus is teaching? And then he says, okay, let me explain it further. And he starts into a parable. But what think ye? A certain man had two sons and he came to the first and said, son, go work today in my vineyard. Okay, now let's pause and think through what is it that the the father is saying to the son. Now, before we go any further, let's ask the question, is it reasonable for a father to ask his son to go to work? Yes or no? Now, how many of you would say, listen, not only reasonable for him to ask, he can say, son, go get to work. All right. But, but he doesn't say that. He's being so careful. He says, okay, a certain father. And he says, okay, son, today, here's what I want you to do. Now, I also find it at least noteworthy that this doesn't appear to be a, a 24-7 thing. He's not saying, son, you have to work, 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 work. When you, when you look at this, he's not being unreasonable. It appears this wasn't even a daily request. It's not that the father was asking something that, that all of us would say, oh, that's just too much. Certainly there'd be time for rest, time for refreshment, for friends, for family. And dare we even say time for some, some wholesome entertainment Yes, there'd be time, I believe, for all of these things. But today, the father was requesting reasonable work from the sons. You know, at times we have to go to both sides of the pendulum of work. There are times when people say, well, I just have to work, 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 work. And they deny some of those other God-blessed, God-ordained relationships that need investment as well. And at times we have people who say, well, I, I've married and, and I'll come and I'll follow you, but I have to go take care of my marriage first. And, or I've got to go bury my father and I've, got to, I've taken a new, a, a new team and I've got to go plow. 
He says, hey, listen, there's time for all of that. There's a balance to serving and working for God. But what he's saying is, what do you think? Is this reasonable? He, he keeps setting things out for us in a way that he's asking for us to derive our own conclusions regarding all of the facts presented. Well, today, the father is requesting reasonable work from his sons. Now, it doesn't diminish that either. He is saying, okay, there's gonna be time for everything that you need to do. All these God-blessed functions of life, there's gonna be time for all of that, but today I'm asking for you to work. Whew, work. Do you know when, when God first commissioned Adam in the garden, work was not part of the curse. In fact, work is part of that which God intended for man to engage upon in order for man to prosper. So now he's saying, I want you to work. The Bible reiterates this. It reinforces these thoughts all throughout. For example, when we start to think about work, Colossians 3.23, a familiar verse says this. And whatsoever you do, now notice these next words, do it. And whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. Those two words, the word do it, that's actually one Greek word. And do you know what the word literally means? And whatsoever you do, work with everything you have. It's the word for work. And whatsoever you do, work at it with everything that you have. Listen, when your hand finds itself on the plow, give yourself wholly to it. Do the work that is before you. Don't do it half-heartedly. Don't do it, oh, well, I suppose it's some obligation that I should have. When you look at all the facts of all that the Father has done, we don't only see this response of obligation, we actually see a response of love. Like, wow, look at all the Father has done for me. This overflow of the Father produces an overflow in the Son. Now, God, this is what I want to do is my overflow in response to you. But he says, okay, work. Now, remember, we never work for our salvation. We do work because of our salvation. So what he's not saying is, listen, you better start working for your salvation. No, that's never part of the scriptural narrative. What is part of the scriptural instruction for us is because of our salvation, hey, let's get to work. What right, we might ask. Okay, let's just pause for a moment. Okay, so he's talking about work. He asked the son to work. What right does God the Father have to ask for you to work, for me to work? Just briefly, consider a couple things. First of all, he has the right based on ownership. He has the right based on ownership. Okay, what you own, you get to, to use to, in a sense, put to work. 1 Corinthians 7, 23, ye are bought with a price. Now we're not gonna stop there, but it's not a bad place to begin. What right does he have to say, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna use you in this capacity. Well, what if we say, I don't wanna, I wanna choose. No, 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 I'm bought with a price. God, you use me in whatever setting, whatever place, to whatever degree, for however long, I am yours to use. I am bought with a price. Okay, so the first basis is based on ownership. What right does he have? Number two, he has the right based on example. The right based on example. Jesus came to work. The Bible says in John 13, 15, for I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. 
Do you know Jesus took on the form of a servant, made in the likeness of men. When he said, all right, listen, this is what I've done for you. What had he just done? He had just girded himself in a towel, the form of a simple, humble servant. And then he washed the disciples' feet. He just said, listen, this is a work that needs to be done. I'll do the work. He said, you work following my example. So what right does he have? Well, a right based on ownership, a right based on example. He also has the right based on urgency. The right based on urgency. In other words, there is some urgent task that needs to be done. I need you to do this. I need you to do this right now. A right based on urgency. In John chapter 9, verse 4, Jesus said, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. He says, listen, we've got a limited window of opportunity. Let's work while we can. And then he also has a right based on provision. A right based on provision. He's provided us. Listen, when you think about what has God provided you, How many of you, all things being equal, how many of you say, listen, God has not given me a choir voice. I make some joyful noises, but it's not a choir voice. How many of you would say that right there? Raise your hand. Okay, lots of you. Okay, some of you might have a choir voice. You say, okay, he's provided me. Maybe you should sing in the choir. You say, well, 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 okay, let's move on. What else? Well, what else? Um, How many of you, now don't raise your hand, okay? And I'm serious about this, don't raise your hand, but how many of you have provision that God's provided you in ways that are sometimes for you mind-blowing? Like, well, I can't believe how God's provided for me financially. I continue to look back with amazement at how God has blessed with this venture and and this, and he's given me a mind that allows me to to generate funds and income. now, now, it'd be easy for us to say, well, let's raise our hands if we are not that person. No, don't do it, okay? But there's a lot of people that like, well, the Lord's just blessed them with, and they can say, I, I wanna be a part of this, and, and I wanna be a part of that, and I wanna see the temporal used in ways that actually touches eternity, okay? Provision. Some of you are skilled in ways with your hands that we continue to stand back with amazement and say, wow, how do you do that? And you figured out a way to connect your physical mechanical abilities in ways that advance kingdom work. Some of you have hospitality gifts that are obvious. I mean, you can make people feel comfortable and at home. Now, right now, I'm just talking about things connected to the, in a sense, to the local body, but they expand so far beyond that. A a person that makes another person feel welcome at church. Some of you are insightful with discipleship and you can walk a person from one point to the next point, to the next point, to the next point. And you can see a person grow from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity where they actually start that whole process for another person over. All of these are provisions from the hand of almighty God. And these are provisions intended to be used correctly. Did you ever, when you were a kid, did you ever get sent to the store on your bike um, with milk money to bring home a jug of milk? How many of you ever had to do that when you were a kid? Okay, we did all the time. And we'd ride down to Ernie's Market, okay? 
Ernie's Market. We'd go buy a gallon of milk from Ernie's Market. And mom would give us, I don't know how much it was. Probably back then, it was probably a quarter, okay? So we, we got whatever money it was. If you were a kid and you were ever sent to the store with milk money, how many of you ever strolled by the candy aisle with the milk money? Any of you ever dare come back with candy when mom sent you for milk? Listen, I didn't, and, and I'm standing here today as proof that I didn't, okay? <laughs> Do you know, if, if God has provisioned us with something, doesn't he have an intention for it to be used in a specific way? So as we consider, okay, now he's provisioned me. He has a reasonable expectation. Now he's saying, now you, you do the evaluation. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, this idea of provision, 1 Timothy 1.12, Paul said, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who hath enabled me for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Paul recognized that God had enabled him. That is God had provisioned him to do the work of the ministry. How has God provisioned you and what are you doing with that provision? I genuinely, genuinely believe that God never provisions us without some very purpose in mind for the provision. Okay, so, so he's just laying this all out. He says, okay, I, I have first of all given this introductory expectation. Now it's an invited evaluation. But what think ye? What do you think? And now he goes on in what we would call an insightful examination. An insightful examination. He says, okay, now let's just kind of examine what it is that takes place. He says, you be the judge. What do you think regarding these circumstances? Look a little bit further regarding the first son that's mentioned in the text that we're looking at. Verse number 29, Matthew chapter 21. He answered and said, I will not but afterward, he repented. Okay, now what is he saying in this passage? Back up just a little bit when you look at verse number 28 in the passage. But what think ye? A certain man had two sons and he came to the first and said, son, go work today in my vineyard. Okay, well, what's the first son say? He answered and said, I will not. But afterward, he repented and went. Huh. I'm, I'm not going to do that. Uh, dad says, hey, son, I need you to get out to the vineyard today and work. And the son looks at his dad. This is some audacity on the part of this kid. Uh, no, no, I've got other plans today. I'm not going to work. Years ago, when, um, when I was probably 13, 14 years old, we were putting new shingles on an old detached garage that um, the home that I grew up in on Michigan Ave in Adrian, Michigan. And I can remember my dad saying, all right, Jeffrey, let's go. We're, we're putting shingles on the, it's time to work. We got to go do some more work on the garage. And I looked at my dad, I said, oh, dad, I can't. I'm going to play ball. I told my friends I'm going to go play ball down at the park. My dad looked at me and my dad said, Jeffrey, when I was your age, I'd have given anything to have a dad that would teach me the things that I want to teach you. But if you want to go play ball, go play ball. No, dad, I'm working with you doing the shingles, okay? Do you know what the dad says? He's provided everything for the, this boy. I mean, everything that this kid needs, he's provided. 
And, and he says, son, I need you to go work in the vineyard today. And the boy has the audacity to look at the, his father and say, no, I'm not gonna do it. It is interesting. One of the things that grieves the Holy Spirit is when the Holy Spirit says, do this, and we say no. It's actually called quenching the Holy Spirit. We quench. He says, hey, I want you to, no. I know this is easy, but I, I, I mean, it's right here. So I say, hey, I want you to sing in the choir. No. No, you have to do this to sing in the choir. You have to do that. I want you to serve in, in hospitality. No, I don't want to. I want you to coach your local children's soccer team. And I want you to do so with an intention beyond coaching soccer. No. That's going to take time. I know. I know there's only so much of it and we have to work while it is yet day. There's coming a time when you won't have those opportunities. I want you to be involved in, I want you to give towards, I want you to serve in, I want you to find some new way to, no. Well, that's what the son says. He looks at the father and he has the audacity to look at his father and say, no, dad, I'm not going to work in your vineyard. But notice what happens, but afterward, he repented and went. After considering the request, he repented. Remember, the word simply means repent. It means to change your mind. We also understand a true change of mind always results in a genuine change of action. When I change my mind, I change my action. What we see here is that he truly repented of the wrong thinking and he recognized the truth. The word afterward, it doesn't mean immediately. It just means afterward. Some time went by. Uh, go work in my vineyard. No, dad, I'm not going. And, he, and he, it's as if he takes off. He doesn't say, oh, okay, dad, I'm sorry, I'll go. Afterward, some time had, had transpired. You know, God gave him, in a sense, in this story, in the parable, a little space to think about, like, wow, did I just tell my dad no? Did I just refuse what it is that he instructed me to do? Did, did I just have the, 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 the audacity to refuse a reasonable instruction from my father? Well, he considers it. This would be similar to what we call true repentance in, in scripture, which would be godly sorrow, godly sorrow. We again won't take time to look at the, explore the whole passage, but I'd encourage you for future study to just take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter seven. It details what happens when there is true repentance or what we call here godly sorrow. 2 Corinthians 7.10, for godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. You know, you just start to consider the differences in those who had regret, but not repentance. They're found all throughout scripture. Again, these are, are topics for future study, but you can think of a couple people right now like Esau. Esau, wow, there was some ouch to the circumstances that he didn't like, but not that brought him godly sorrow to true repentance. The Bible, even in the New Testament, hearkens back to this. For a mess of pottage, he sells his birthright. He didn't like the circumstances that came as a result of that, but not true repentance. Hebrews 12, 16 and 17, lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, 
who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For you know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected and found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. Do you know what kind of repentance he's seeking? Change of circumstances, not godly sorrow. I don't like these circumstances. In fact, it drives me to tears, but, but not true, genuine repentance. We could look at Judas. The Bible even uses the word, we read the word repent. In, in, in Matthew chapter 27, verse number three, then Judas, which betrayed him when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself. Do you know it's not the same word? The word repentance here, it, mean, it doesn't mean to change your mind. The word that's used here means he regretted what he did. Oh, did I just do that? But he doesn't change his mind. Oh, he has regrets. He doesn't like all the things that are taking place as a result, but no godly sorrow. How does the second son respond? And he came to the second, verse number 30, Matthew chapter 21. And he came to the second and said, likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. And went not. I'm going. Hey, what do you need? Uh, Dad, what do you need me to do? I'm there. Uh, I need you to go work in the vineyard. Done. But he went not. It sounded great. Like he knew exactly the things to say. He knew the poise to, at that moment, take. He's, he's got the whole thing. I mean, d- dad, d- sorry, about, sorry about him. Dad, no, 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 don't worry about him. I'm going, I'm going. I'm going to do what I want to do is what I'm going to do. See, he tells his dad what his dad wants to hear. He says the right words. He strikes the right, the right pose but he is not going to work in that vineyard. We get the idea that the second son never had any intention of obeying the command. He may have assumed that his pleasant attitude was sufficient, but simply acknowledging God and his rightful expectations for us is never the same as obedience. Galileo, who created some of the first high-powered telescopes by which he made some incredible discoveries in astronomy was condemned in the 17th century as a heretic. It's interesting that he was condemned by the Roman Catholic Church because he was teaching that the earth traveled around the sun. Now we know this to be true but he was ordered to recant that position because it varied from the Roman Catholic Church. As a 70 year old man Galileo appeared at the Minerva convent on June 22nd, 1633, dressed as a penitent. He, the Catholic church again is, is that which he is trying to reconcile himself with. So, you know, Galileo um, was saying something that they considered heresy and notice what he said. I, Galileo, age 70, kneeling before you, most reverend lords, have before my eyes the holy gospels, as I have written a book in which I have maintained that the sun is the center of the world and that the earth is not, which doctrine is repugnant. I do now with sincere heart and unfeigned faith detest and curse the error and heresy and all other errors deemed contrary to the holy church, whose penance I solemnly swear to observe faithfully. Then 
Galileo arose from his kneeling position and he whispered to a friend, the earth does move nevertheless. What was Galileo doing? Not genuine repentance. Notice how Jesus concludes this discussion. Matthew 21, beginning in verse number 31, whether of them twain did the will of his father, they say unto him, the first. Jesus saith unto them, verily I say unto you, that the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came unto you in the way of righteousness and ye believed him not, but the publicans and the harlots believed him and ye, when ye had seen it, repented not afterward that ye might believe him. Can you picture in your mind's eye the steam rising from the ears of the Pharisees? Now to say it plainly, what Jesus is teaching is this, that the harlots and the tax collectors, the public sinners of the day, were closer to the kingdom of God than the Pharisees, the perceived saints of the day. And the sinners were closer to the kingdom because they didn't say one thing and do the other. They recognized Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life. The Pharisees recognized their own righteousness as the way. Most here to whom I am speaking have come to God through what Hebrews 10.20 says is a new and living way. If you haven't, then of course, you today can accept Jesus as your substitute as your righteousness, as your payment for sin. I I implore you to accept him, not as an addition to your works, but as your finished work. But as I said, most here have already accepted him. The question now is, what are you going to do for him? How will you serve him with what he has entrusted to you in this coming year? my encouragement would be for you to start. Start small, but do start. Ask, how am I serving the Lord by serving his church? It's a great place to start. Serve in a children's ministry. Work in the nursery. Serve in hospitality. Serve by helping lock up buildings. Serve. You say, well, I don't know. There's there's so many people. There's not a place to serve. I truly believe that anyone who is looking for a place to serve will find one. How else do we serve? Start small, serve his church, serve his community, the place where you live. You say, well, well, I don't know how long I'm gonna be here. Do you know when God's people were held in captivity, he told them, so long as you're there, plant gardens. Yeah, establish yourself. I mean, I mean, take up the regular responsibilities of community. Serve your community. How can I get involved in serving people in the community? Serve those people who are oftentimes underserved. They're, they're so often those people that are more ready, more prepared to say, I recognize my need. Serve those people who are incarcerated. Serve those people who are the sick or the halt or the weary. Find ways in the community to say, Lord, how can I serve you with what you have entrusted to me? If you're married, serve with your spouse and your children. 
Let them grow up serving the Lord as a family. Make it a delight and demonstrate the overflow of your love for Jesus that results in serving. You know, when when children see their parents serving one another because they love each other. Hey, come here, take this to your dad. He loves this. Hey, hey, let's do this for your mom. Let's take care of this for her. When children see parents serving one another because they love each other, what a wonderful environment for them to grow up in. And when children see their parents serving the Lord because of this overflow of love, not because I signed up to do this at the church. Come on, we got to go. I have to. Oh, what a difference it communicates to a child seeing the overflow of love. Stretch yourself this year. Pursue something that may be a bit beyond you that if I ever do that, it would clearly be of the Lord. Ah, what a great place to put ourselves. If I do that, the Lord would have to, oh, I'm not saying to do something that he's not equipped you to do, that he's not supplied you to do, but something that would be a stretch for you to do, bringing new reliance upon the necessity of his supply. The intent of this parable and then several following was to show that while Israel's leaders were claiming to follow God with their words, their actions were far from it. And while many Gentiles would immediately reject Christ, after they considered the claims of Jesus, they repented and came to Christ. The Apostle John reminds believers of this important truth. My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. A man that I do not know ever ascribed to the true claims of Christ did articulate something that is insightful. His name's Mark Twain and Mark Twain said, actions speak louder than words, but not nearly as often. May our actions speak often and more powerfully than our words. Campus Church, may this year be unprecedented love for our Lord, evidenced by our unprecedented service to the same.